If you would for a moment just imagine that you're the site manager of an addiction recovery program. The facility that you oversee houses some 300 patients who are recovering from serious addictions to drugs. Here's your day, three scenarios. Scenario one, a woman is high on meth. She comes to your office and asks admittance to the home. What do you do? You explain that she is not ready for residency. This home, you explain, cannot receive someone who's under the influence. You must first detoxify. Then please come back and join our community. But our mission is to keep patients off of drugs, to grow in their capacities to remain free. And I'm sorry, but you're just not in the place where that will be helpful to our people. And so come back after detox. Scene two. Later in the day, a man talks to you. He's not high on drugs at the moment, but he hangs his head and he says, I'm an addict. I'll always be an addict. If I enter this program, I'd, ne- I'd never help anyone. I'd only hurt people. I'd, I need it, but I, I just can't do it. <clears throat> I'd pull people down. What would you say? You're exactly the person that we serve. You're exactly the kind of person that we want to be part of our home. We help people stay clean. We teach them how to live free of drugs that once controlled their lives. So every single person in this facility is or was exactly like you are now. Don't be intimidated. Join us as you are. Scenario three. An aide enters your office and reports bad news. There's a patient who's lived with you for two years who we've now discovered has been smuggling drugs into the home. He's been pushing drugs onto other patients and when confronted he became hostile, threatening, uncooperative. He refuses to receive correction. As a site manager, what will you do? This man's continued presence in your facility puts every other patient at risk. He needs to be here, but not like this. Further, the integrity and reputation of your program will be compromised in the eyes of the public if he stays here moving drugs into a facility meant to keep people off. Well, I play these out because, in a sense, as a church, we walk some of these same lines. In a Christ-honoring local church, we will have to navigate the balance of three fairly similar scenarios, just on a very different level. Scenario one, we must restrict from our membership people who are not yet born again, who are not spirit-baptized. People who are unregenerate must not be admitted into the membership of Christ's visible body when they are not members of His spiritual universal body. They're not there yet. By God's grace, He'll bring them there. But they're not members of this body for that reason. Scenario two, the church is a hospital for sinners. The only people who will ever enter the membership of Eden Baptist Church are forgiven sinners. There are no sinless people here, never have been. 
And so we warmly welcome into membership imperfect people. In fact, those who say, I I can't come in and corrupt the assembly. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. I'm not good enough. I'm not thinking properly. We'd say, no, that's exactly what this church is for. We rejoice with those who, so to speak, come off the street. New believers, struggling believers, but people who want to grow in Christ. That's why we're here. And scenario three. Should a rehabilitation home for addicts continue to provide shelter and extend welcome to a man who insists on bringing illicit drugs into the community? It's it's an obvious answer. Of course not. This man must be removed from the home until he's willing to live under the rules and pursue health. Otherwise, he's a severe hindrance to everyone, including himself in some sense, fooling himself that he's actually making progress when he's not. Most Bible-believing churches understand and practice scenarios one and two. That is, they seek to maintain a regenerate church membership, to welcome into their assembly only those who know Christ as Savior. And they're welcoming to those who are sinners and say, I want to grow. They say, come, be under the ministry of the Word and let's let's grow together. But scenario three, that's a little more rare. For a member of the assembly who claims to know Christ as Savior, who begins to walk in unrepentant sin, does a church have the capacity, the courage, the sense of obedience to Christ to remove that individual from the membership of the church? Many times the answer is no. We treat scenario three just like scenario two. That's where the Corinthian church was, right in that very spot, treating a scenario three situation like a scenario two. They were tolerating, so to speak, a drug dealer living among the recovering addicts. And Paul takes them to task here on that decision, on that bent in their assembly. First, we see that Paul in chapter five rebukes the church for their spiritual negligence. He calls out the entrenched sin in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. A member of the church is living in a state of unrepentant sexual sin. A brief note on the cultural context here is helpful. A woman was usually given in marriage to an older man and polygamy was common. Families usually lived in multi-generational situations, so this couple may well have been closer in age than the woman was to her legitimate husband. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know how they first came together. What we also don't understand is why the church had come to tolerate it. What pagan Corinthians viewed as repulsive and technically illegal in that day the church was overlooking. So Paul calls out this entrenched sin and then secondly rebukes the church's negligent response to that sin. 
verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Why was the church arrogant? Why was the church boastful? There's two possibilities, and it's difficult to know, but were they arrogant because of this member's sin? Or were they arrogant in spite of, alongside this member's sin? We cannot be certain, but go back to chapter 4 and verse 8. Remember that in the argument here, the sustained argument through chapter 4, chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul says, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that we did reign so that we might share the rule with you. We remember this being entirely sarcastic. They had this elevated view of themselves. Verse 10 of chapter 4, We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Again, sarcasm. He's saying you're arrogant. You, you are so elevated in your own mind. And that may then play into why they were arrogant in the, with, with respect to this individual. So it may be that they had such a heightened view of themselves as exalted citizens of heaven that they failed to lower their nose enough to see what was going on around their feet. Their heads were stuck in the clouds of human wisdom and pride, but their church was harboring moral corruption and they refused to see it. So possibly less you're proud about his sin and more, he's sinning, and all you can do is look at yourself so much so that you don't even address this individual in your assembly. They should be mourning over this sin. And why does he say that? Because as has been the sustained argument to this point, this is not who you are. United to Christ, you should mourn over this sin, not strut about as if you owned heaven itself. You are so arrogant, so self-trusting, that you're not seeing the situation as you should. Christ's reputation is at stake. The health of the church is at stake. Now remember, this, this man living in this sin, I, I think it's clear that he is a member of the assembly, not the woman. But this man living in sin, this is a serious situation. It's something that's very wrong. This passage is not about him. This, ma- this passage is about the church. His sin is a given. But your sin as a church, Paul says, is what I'm concerned about. How is this possible that you're tolerating this, that you're overlooking this, that you're allowing this to go on under your noses that are tipped so high to the sky that you don't see who you've become as a church? And so thirdly, Paul instructs the church to act in honor of Christ. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. If the church was rightly grieved by this sin, they would have, in unity of purpose, already removed this member from their community. Church membership can look differently in different contexts, with varying degrees of formality. But a local church must have a way to determine who is inside the church and who is not. 
And a local church must have a way then to remove a member entrenched in sin from that circle. We draw that conclusion clearly from verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. If you don't know who's among you, you can't remove anybody from among you. Some way, somehow, a church needs to say to be able to follow this directive. So, Paul rebukes the church for their spiritual negligence. In the next movement here, he exhorts the church to correct her error. So this is what you should have done to remove him from among you. Here's my instruction now, verses 3 to 5. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. I read, and as present, the word if is supplied by the ESV, you're free to cross it out. It isn't there. It's meant to help us as we think about the way that we express things in English, but then it misses the point. Uh, Sadly, it is not as if I were present. It is, I'm present. I'm there in spirit. It's not a way that we talk often, but he's not saying, I really wish I could be with you. I can't be with you physically, but I assure you that I'm there in spirit. That's how we talk. But what Paul is actually saying is, I'm there, united in Christ, one in the Holy Spirit, Speaking as an apostle, I am with you in the power of the Spirit. The decision was clear, and Paul had rendered proper judgment regarding this man. Therefore, verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my Spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So they're going to get together as the body of Christ. They're going to gather as a church. And he says you're responsible in that gathering to do two things with one move. First, remove this unrepentant member from fellowship with the assembly, which is second, to remand him to the realm of Satan who is the God of this world. This sounds strange to our ears. Turn this one over to Satan. We don't talk like that normally. But it means they must remove this member from under the protective, edifying canopy of the church. He is within. He needs to be moved outside. By doing so, they will subject him to the realm where he is exposed to the pain, to the emptiness, to the futility of Satan's rebellion. But what does Paul mean by that there, outside the church, in the realm of Satan's work? What does he mean that, he, that the flesh will be destroyed? Many have answered this and say, well, the flesh destroyed means he's going to die. God will take him out in physical discipline at this place. I've seen this happen, literally, in a very similar scenario. I don't think that's what Paul means. Any answer that we come up with, what does the destruction of the flesh mean, must be qualified by what the goal is. You're to deliver him, verse 5, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Notice this phrase. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
So I don't believe that Paul speaks here of the man's death, although that's certainly possible. But rather the destruction of the flesh has an ethical and metaphorical meaning. Gordon Fee has put this well. The flesh refers to the man oriented against God, and the spirit refers to the man oriented toward God. So by the church acting this way, placing this man outside the canopy, the protective care of the church, in the realm of Satan, the hope is that he will reorient, repent, and come back into assembly. Let's take our drug smuggler in scene three. Our goal is for him to remain in the home, not to kick him out, because we just want to kick him out. But he can't keep selling drugs in the home. So what we hope is that he will come to change of heart and to repentance and give up what he's doing and return to the assembly. That's the goal for this man. That he would be oriented toward God, not against him. By the futility, the emptiness of life, cut off from God's assembly, the hope is that his soul will be reoriented to the church and recalibrated to the love of Christ who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So this is a scenario three guy. He needs to be removed from the treatment center, so to speak, until he reorients his life to recovery, not to using drugs. And always, may we never forget that the goal of church discipline is always repentance and restoration. That is clearly in view here on Paul's part. He's not laboring over much on that point because this man is entrenched in the sin. He is not changing his mind. And so Paul says, I trust that he will be saved in the day of the Lord, that he will orient toward the Spirit and away from the flesh as he experiences life apart from the assembly and living as an unbeliever in this world. The horrible spot to be. It's the only answer. Now, Paul defends this directive, the necessity of purging this individual from the church in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So Paul illustrates here, he takes the uh, invasive, corruptive nature of unrepentant sin in the church and likens it to leaven in dough. Leaven is a, a pinch of leftover dough from the week before. It's not really yeast. Yeast does the same thing, but yeast is pure. Leaven is not pure. You take a pinch of dough from the week before, you keep that alive on Sabbath, uh, if you're Israelite, and you let that grow, it's bad stuff. You put it in the bread for that week, and the bread rises because of the leaven that is in it. So it was used as a picture of the pervasive, powerful influence of sin. Taking that analogy from leavened and unleavened bread... He says, you are allowing that leaven to permeate and to cause the church to rise in a bad sense. Every year around this time, this time of year where we are at, the Jews celebrated Passover. The festival commemorated the sacrifice of the Passover lamb 
in the place of the firstborn of Israel. It commemorated the exodus from Egypt and Israel's salvation by the blood of that lamb and by the Lord's uh, wonderful deliverance. But attached to the one-day Passover celebration followed then the week of unleavened bread. Sometimes it's confusing because that whole week could be called Passover. But technically, Passover was the day, the week of unleavened bread that followed. So every Sabbath, you kept alive that pinch of leaven, and then at Passover, you went for a whole week. Now some have said this probably had something to do with hygiene and with protecting uh, Israel uh, from illness and the like. The Bible makes nothing of that. But what Paul makes of it here is he applies it to them is that attached to that one-day Passover, this week-long feast of unleavened bread, that is a picture of who you are, freed from sin, the power and bondage of sin broken. You are to be a lump of dough that is not permeated by evil and growing evil in its midst. Now, we, we come as scenario two people. We come as sinners, But the church is not a place for sin to take root and to grow. So the leaven of that day could contain dirt. It could even carry disease. Paul says that is not a good picture of who you are. Rather, you are like the unleavened bread. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That is a new unleavened lump. As you really are. Now, it's interesting here. It's like he catches himself. Cleanse out the sin so that you will be a pure lump. Wait, time out. I don't want you to get the idea, he says, that that means by your effort you will purify yourself and be right in the eyes of God. What does he say? Verse 7. For as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's the point? Christ has won your righteousness. Christ has died in your place to pay the cost of your sin. The blood on the doorpost at Passover, that's the blood of Jesus shed for us. That's where our righteousness is. It's not in your performance. It's not in your merit. It's in the fact that He has made you a pure people. Not sinless. But this is the problem with sin. And we grasp it. We take a step forward. The problem with sin is we are not acting as who we are. We're not acting as who God made us in Christ. You are this lump of dough without leaven. For the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So, verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven. Again, he's just illustrating the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's a call to celebrate our deliverance from sin as a holy community redeemed by Jesus. A community whose corporate life reflects the reality of our liberation from sin. That's who we are. That is precisely what the man living in sexual immorality was not doing. He was living like a drug drug dealer in a rehab facility. And that he simply had to go. The leaven had to be cut out of the lump, so to speak, and removed. 
So moving from that illustration, Paul now clarifies his exhortation to correct any misunderstanding. It would appear that there may have been some misunderstanding previously, but it's probably mostly misunderstanding that's just because they're ornery. They just don't like Paul very much, and so they're they're reading him the wrong way. But he's going to clear that all up here, beginning at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul refers here to a previously written letter. So this is what I'm not saying, he says, verse 10. This is not what I'm saying. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or let's add other ideas, the greedy, swindlers, idolaters. You'd have, to need, you'd have to go out of the world to do that. As we emerge from the assembly of God's people, we enter into an unbelieving world with the message of the gospel. We're to proclaim good news, hope, salvation, and rescue from hell. That's the message. That's the sword of the gospel that we take into this world. Good news. We are not to demand that unbelievers live holy lives as if they were spirit-indwelt people. And watch it. We must watch it, Christian. When we ridicule the lost who are acting like they're lost, they don't have the gift of the Spirit that you have. We must remember that and mourn, not mock, and not ultimately accuse where only God can. We're not to demand that they live as spirit-indwelt people. To separate from unbelievers because they are sinners would demand that we take a rocket ship and live on the moon. That's not what he's saying. Verse 11, what is Paul's concern? But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. There's an assumption we got to grasp in verse 11. That assumption is uh, that this is an individual in the assembly who refuses to repent. Not an individual in the assembly who has sinned, but one who is saying, I'm staying in my sin. This is where I remain. For that person, verse 11 is, is our instruction. Paul's concern is then with that professing believer who refuses to live as if freed from the bondage of sin, which is what Christ has done. This is not all about the sinner, and it's not all about the church. It's all about Christ. He has broken the bondage of sin. This should be evidenced in the life of those who are part of the assembly. So by disassociating with, By not eating with, that speaks of table fellowship or just a a welcome reception as a Christian brother or sister. By responding this way, the aim is against any correction that might look like continuing Christian fellowship. He is not saying, have nothing to do with this person ever. He's saying, make it clear that you have broken off Christian fellowship. Make it clear that they are no longer a beloved church member. A few generations ago, everybody was referred to in the church as brother and sister. 
some parts of the country that's still the case. But what would happen then when a person came to a place of unrepentant, continuing sin, refusing to turn, the church would drop the word brother and sister. So seeing this individual out in the small community and having greeted him as Brother Ed, we now just say, Hello, Ed. Just breaking the sense of Christian fellowship because of this entrenched sin. That's where Paul's guiding us. This is not how we relate to unbelievers. But when a member of Christ's body begins to live in unrepentant sin, when they begin to live as one who has not been delivered from God's wrath by the sanctifying work of Christ, our Passover lamb, then Christian fellowship must end. We can, I think, potentially, based on circumstances, continue to relate in daily business with this individual. We can relate to them as family members in our homes. But all distinctly Christian fellowship is to be broken off as epitomized in table fellowship of the common meal. So it would obviously include the Lord's table, but I think would extend beyond that to just saying, hey, let's get together and enjoy some time together as brothers, sisters in Christ. That is over. Until this one reorients repents, and is then restored to fellowship. Moving from a scenario three to a scenario two person. Verse 12. For what have I to do, as he just closes this up, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Just repeating the point, making sure that they grasp it. This is not indifference to the lost nor is this saying the church should have no voice in the moral standards of the larger community. It is saying that we cannot press the distinctive moral fiber of the redeemed church upon people who do not possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's asking too much. On a large scale, it is saying that our task is not to reform society or create Christian nations, but rather to shine brightly as the church in a dark world. To represent the purity that Christ died to give us in the eyes of this lost world. On a more narrow scale, it means that unbeliever at work, that unsaved neighbor, that lost relative, our orientation toward them is not one of declaring, it is one of declaring the good news of redemption in Christ, not demanding their moral conformity to Scripture. Again, there's a place where we can speak for the truth, we can speak for what is right, but my task is not to press them into the mold of one who is following Christ when they are not. The task is to point them to trust the Gospel, to be transformed then by the Spirit, and then to live for Christ. So he ends very pointedly, purge the evil person from among you. The church as a body, as a community, is responsible to preserve its own holiness. And sometimes as here, the removal from the body then must be handled publicly. The church must take the responsibility to act for God's honor 
and the purity of his people. And this is, on this Palm Sunday, a place where a church says Christ is king. He is the king of this people. He is the master of this assembly. He is the one that has purchased us, and so we conform to his call upon our lives. And what is very clear from this passage is that Christ wants a pure church. It is our corporate responsibility then as a church to exercise scenario three discipline when we must. It's our moral calling as a church to say this is not what Christ saves someone to do. This is not how, why Christ saved an individual to live this way. Again, we're talking only where there is entrenched sin and the believer refuses to turn, to acknowledge wrong or to correct their way. Christ will have a pure church. That is what he's calling us to help him accomplish. Another principle that we certainly gain here is that uh, thinking of it from our own standpoint or perhaps as we counsel other Christians, if you refuse to become a covenanting member of a local church, you're choosing to set yourself outside the means that God establishes to protect you and to hold you accountable. What if you're this guy? What if I'm this guy? What kind of a church do you want to be in? If a clouding of mind and spirit comes over me and I enter into a life of sin and I choose to go after that sin with all my heart to refuse to listen to counsel, refuse to change, what kind of a church do I want to be in? Not Corinth. You say, well, you get away with it. Nobody's going to say anything. Do you want to be in a church like that? Do we not want to be in an assembly where we know our brothers and sisters there would love us enough to say, you must turn. You must turn. So, we're not cleaning up the unbelievers' lives, but we are upholding one another's lives, seeking to hold one another accountable. Again, that doesn't mean that we cannot say to an unbeliever, you need to live differently. I remember the salvation testimony of a young man who was living a godless life at full speed. And his life was falling apart as he just pursued sin more and more vigorously. And he talked about the day that he got on his motorcycle, he drove to a friend that was a believer. And he's kind of hanging his head and sort of moping. And this believer said to him, bro, your life is an absolute mess. And that shocked him awake. And he came to trust Christ as a Savior. He was sharing this testimony as the one who arrested my attention and pointed me to Christ. And he gave praise to God that he'd been delivered from his sin. Now that's someone talking pretty pointedly to an unbeliever. That's good. If God leads that way, if it is appropriate, and it can be inappropriate, but if it's appropriate, that's good. That's not the same as saying, you need to get your act together, straighten up, and start flying right. That's not what that man was saying. He was saying, your life is a mess. You need Christ. 
That's a message we can say by way of correction to a lost world. And that's a message that we say to one another with a little different take. When we say your life is a mess, when we confront an unbeliever who's living in entrenched sin, we do not speak boastfully, arrogantly, proudly. We say, brother, sister, you must turn. For your sake, for the good of this assembly, for the glory of God, you must turn from your sin. There we take on a different orientation, and that's what God's calling us to do in this passage. Purge the evil person from among you if he will not repent. So we play out these scenarios. In scenario one, resisting as members those who do not show evidence of regeneration by Christ. We welcome them here. We encourage them to come. We continue to proclaim the gospel. We're thrilled if you're in that spot and here with us today. But membership in the church is saying, I have come to place my faith in Christ crucified and risen. The picture of the blood on the door frames at Passover, that's my life, that's Christ's blood. I plead His blood in my place to pay the penalty of my sin. And I have to say, by way of warning in this passage, if you're an unbeliever in Christ, you've not come to put your trust and faith in Christ's death and resurrection for you and for your salvation. That blood's not on your post. And it says that God judges those outside. So be warned. Take heart. Come to Christ. You don't want to be the one that God judges. But as to the church in scenario two, within the assembly there are those who grow in maturity. There are those who have walked with the Lord for a long time. There are those for whom Sin has been put to death in corner after corner, nook and cranny of their heart. Don't be intimidated. We all walk in as sinners. That's who we are. The whole issue is not how far down the road you are in your sanctification. The issue is which direction is your nose pointed. That's all matters. Pointing your nose in the right direction is what we're looking for. So we take that second scenario man in the, at, at the drug rehab facility. He said, I can't come in here. Everybody's doing better than me. I'm going to pull everybody down. This is not where I should be. What do you say? This is where you should be. And if you have that sense, I can't join the church or I'll drag it down. I, I don't even want to come. Keep coming. There's only sinners here. But as we think on that third scenario, just concluding, the goal for this man is his salvation. And that is the only legitimate goal in church discipline ever, is the repentance and the ultimate salvation of the individual. If we have any other agenda in church discipline, then we walk outside of Christ's will. 
But if we call one to repentance in genuine love for them to turn from sin and trust Christ, coming back into the assembly, then we are simply laboring with Jesus for the sanctification of his people. May he aid us to do that. It's not necessarily easy, but the results are eternal. We're not talking here as a church about a recovery program. We're talking here as a church about eternal salvation and glorification. That's what's at stake. Something far bigger than getting free of drugs is getting free of sin. For eternity, standing in the presence of the Lord, forgiven by Christ. To that end, we labor in all three scenarios to say there is salvation in Jesus' name. Come to that light. And may we as a church shine that light brightly in a lost world. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we need your help to be faithful. Sometimes it's hard for us to know between categories two and three. What is the natural slog of sin, repentance, sin, repentance, sin, and repentance? And where is a person in entrenched sin refusing to change? It's not always easy to know. In the case that's before us, that was pretty clear. And I pray that in such cases that we would be faithful, and in any other, that we would strive to understand where does a person belong, how are they relating to your church? And I pray that as an assembly might grow our skill, our courage, our resolve, our humility, our patience to exercise such discipline appropriately. But Lord, we thank you for the ongoing relationship of the church whereby we as sinners fall, confess our wrong, and move forward back into fellowship with you and the church. May this be an assembly that is growing increasingly purified. And I pray that we would also grow increasingly receptive to sinners as we put our arm around them and draw them into the light and seek to point others to the salvation that we have found in Christ, the salvation that you have given us by your sovereign grace. Lord, together we pray this and asking in behalf of anyone here who is on the track towards standing before Christ as judge and not as Savior, standing before Him with no blood applied, but their own good works, paling in insignificance, paling in significance, being insignificant before a holy God. Lord, I pray that You turn their heart, bring them to know Christ as Savior even today. Help them to let go of the weight of sin, to find salvation not in themselves, not by self-improvement, but by trusting in Jesus as Savior. We pray that you'll work to that end among us here today and in our groups that gather here momentarily. May we continue to apply these truths to our life as an assembly. We ask you to do this work in and through us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.